And um, by the way, before we, before we get into our lesson for today on the singular revelation of John, um, a couple of points. Revelation, um, often its, its Greek title is the Apocalypse, uh, which sounds super intense because Apocalypse for us is like zombies, right? And like end of the world stuff. The Greek word Apocalypse, it, it's better translated the way that we do it as Revelation. And the word Revelation um, is from the word reveal. And so something that should govern our reading of Revelation is that a lot of times we look at this book and think it's something incredibly cryptic and mystic. And the title that the book is actually given, the, the title that John gives the book in Revelation 1.1 is The Revealing Thing. So what we're going to look at today is that Revelation, like most of the letters written in the New Testament, is addressed to a church. In fact, this one is addressed to how many churches? Seven. Seven. And what we need to understand is that John does not believe he is writing some cryptic, ununderstandable thing to these seven churches. One of the issues that I have with not every futuristic interpretation of Revelation, but with several of them is that a lot of people take Revelation and the visions that John sees to be about things that those seven churches could not comprehend for the life of them. Like, okay, I've mentioned a couple of times, like, these locusts with, like, you know, face like women and teeth and all this stuff. Like, I've heard some futurists be like, oh, yeah, those are, like, Black Hawk helicopters. That's, that's not what that's about. It's, it's very obviously not what that's about. John thinks the things that he's recording in this book are revealing truth to the seven churches that he's writing to and to us. What we have to understand is that we have to think and read like those people think and read in order to have any hope of understanding Revelation. And one of the strategies that we will use is that every time there's this weird symbolic ah thing, we're going to ask the question, is this like anything in the Old Testament? And guess what the answer will be every single time? Yes. yes. Revelation has the exact same thematic structure as Ezekiel. Revelation uses imagery from Zechariah and Joel all the time. And so as we're going through this book, we have to always be thinking, okay, these seven churches know the Old Testament better than you and I do. So as they're reading it, how is language from the Old Testament influencing how they understand what John is saying? I heard somebody one time say, this is a, a person um, uh, that, that, that wrote a very, very, very meaningful commentary on Revelation that is still being used even like 30 years later. And I heard this person say once that, um, they, they said, how did you prepare to write your Revelation commentary? And he said, I took 15 years and studied the major and minor prophets from the Old Testament. And then I felt like I had the backdrop that I needed to read Revelation and understand it. So uh, obviously we're not going to take that amount of time, but that is kind of this primer for how are we going to think through this book. It is a revelation, but it's a revelation to people who know the Old Testament well. So if we want it to be a revelation to us, we need to know it well too. The second thing that we have to understand is that the full title of this book that John gives is the revelation of Jesus Christ. You want to know the number one thing that Revelation is trying to teach you? Stuff about who? 
Jesus. So another issue that I take with some readings of Revelation is that they talk about everything except Jesus. Oh, Russian tanks and microchips and the return of Israel to Palestine and all of this stuff, which, okay, sure, maybe some of that stuff is going on, maybe some of it's not in the book of Revelation. But at the end of the day, if we're taking a reading of Revelation that never makes us think about Jesus, we're taking a wrong reading of Revelation because the title of the book is, uh, hey, this is stuff that was revealed about Jesus. Um, There's a story from, um, any of you guys know who um, Dostoevsky is? The author, I know you do. Um, Dostoevsky was a Russian novelist in the 1800s, and he wrote books like Crime and Punishment, The Brothers Karamazov, and then the one that you all would probably have the most fun with, even though it's very boring at some points. It's called The Idiot. Sounds like a book up your alley, right? Well, in The Idiot. I meant that you make fun of people and call them idiots, not that you, well, I mean, I don't know. So, anyways, um, so, in the book The Idiot, um, the, the main character is, a lot of people think, an idiot. Now, the reason that they think Mishnah is an idiot is Mi- Mishkin. His name's Mishkin. The reason that they think that Mishkin is, a, is an idiot is because Mishkin is a Christian, and Mishkin is a very forgiving, loyal friend. Um, all of his, he's very wealthy, and so all of these people around him try to take advantage of him, and they try to be like kind of cozy up with him and be kind of buddy buddy with him, so that he'll spend outrageous amounts of money on them to meet their needs and wants. And the thing is, as you go through the novel, you 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 learn that the guy is fully aware of what these people are doing and how they're taking advantage of him, but he cares about them very genuinely, even though they're jerks to him. And so he's willing to use his resources to try to make them happy. And so as you go through the book, you realize he's not an idiot. He's actually a very smart guy, but he's willing in humility to be spent for for these people that are around him. Now, there's one fascinating scene in the novel The Idiot that is really important for us as we consider Revelation. There's a part where Mishkin goes to a party, and Mishkin is not a party person. Mishkin does what I do at parties, and he finds a wall. Okay? And so he, he is not the life of the party. He finds a wall, and it just so happens that a person strikes up a conversation with him. And the person that strikes up a conversation with him is a biblical scholar writing a commentary on Revelation. Revelation. And this guy looks at our hero of the story and says, I figured it out which you know is kind of a bad way for a person to start a commentary on Revelation. But he looks at him and he goes, I figured it out. Well, what have you figured out? I figured out, and, and, and we'll see in Revelation, uh, around Revelation 13, there are two beasts in Revelation. All right, We usually just think that there's one. There's two beasts in Revelation. And there's one part where there's one that's sort of like riding on the other one. And, and this, this commentator says, I figured it out. I figured out what the beasts are. Michigan says, okay, tell me. And he says, well, the lesser beast, or the second beast, is the Antichrist, which is a pretty typical interpretation. He says, the first beast are these new European railroad systems that are being built all over the continent, connecting all of our countries. And now what's going to happen is the Antichrist is going to ride on the first beast, and he's going to ride on these European railroad stations, and he's going to be able to go country to country all throughout the continent to deceive the masses, and that's how it's going to work. So we have to oppose the railroad to oppose the Antichrist. And Michigan, you get the impression he was very wide-eyed hearing all of this, and he looks at the guy and he goes, 
you think that St. John of Patmos was writing about European railroad systems. And the guy goes, oh, it's clear from the text, it's clear from the text. And what Dostoevsky, he, he's kind of being mean. The author is kind of being mean. But what he's really wanting you to do as you walk away from that scene is ask the question, which of these men was an idiot? The guy who goes to the Bible and lets it inform his life and ethics, or the guy who goes to the Bible looking for European railroad systems. Okay, And so as we're reading Revelation, that, I think, those, you know, the two pages from that novel, I think are a really, really good guardrail for us as we, as we try to read this book. The thing that it's revealing to us is Christ. Guardrail, not railroad. All right. Um, the thing it's revealing to us is Christ, and we have to keep the main thing the main thing. In two and three? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. It says, um, has the seven spirits of God in the in sentence in chapter three. Why does God have seven spirits? Um, I think I'm not going to get into it any more than this. I'm going to tell you what I think, and then I'm not going to defend it. Okay. I think the seven spirits that are mentioned throughout Revelation is a way of speaking about the Holy Spirit. And I don't think it means that it's seven independent spirits. I think it's a way of using seven symbolically to talk about the fullness, the completeness, something along those lines. But I think that the seven spirits are the way that Revelation often refers to the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. So um, I'm not going to defend that, but there's a book that's out right now, which is something, the title is something along the lines of the Trinity in Revelation. And it's um, uh, written by a professor at Cedarville, uh, in Ohio, which is where Miss, Miss Wood went, right? Um, so uh, that book, I think that, that from what I understand, he gives probably one of the more robust defenses of that view. So you can, you can buy it and you can read it and then you can tell me all about it because I don't have the time nor the money. So um, we do want to return to this initial vision, all right? Um, yesterday we left off with John seeing the scariest thing he'll see in the entire book. The only thing that makes him fall down is if dead, and it is what? Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus' hands are full. He has the keys of death and Hades, which shows that there is something that once belonged to death and Hades that Christ has fought them for and won from them. And I think we're supposed to understand that as redeemed humanity, the church, uh, the, the sinners that he has ransomed, redeemed, paid for. Um, and so in the other hand, though, he's holding seven what? Stars. Stars. So we have Jesus in this vision, and he is surrounded by seven lampstands. And then in his hand, he's holding seven stars. And Jesus does something very kind for us at the end of chapter one that Revelation will not often do for us again. It tells us what the symbolism means which don't get used to that. Do not get used to that. You will look at some things and say, what on earth? Um, But Jesus is nice. He says in verse 20 of chapter one, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he's about to write to seven churches. And each of the lampstands... Uh, equals church. And then the stars that are in his hand equal angels. But that's weird. 
Why is, in a minute, he's going to start writing letters. He's going to start speaking and say, John, write down what I say and then send it to the churches. And in each of these letters, he's going to address it to the angel of the church of Smyrna, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, on and on and on. Makes it a little bit weird that there are letters that John is writing that Jesus is addressing to literal spiritual angels, but is sending to the human congregations of these churches. So the better way to understand that, I think, is that the word angel can do two things in the New Testament. The word angel can literally mean these spiritual uh, angelic beings that we see show up, like Michael and Gabriel. The other thing that the word angel in, in, in Greek can do is the word angelos. And what it can mean is the word messenger. And throughout the New Testament, there are human beings that are called angelosses. And it doesn't mean it in the sense of, ooh, they're a floaty spiritual being. It means it in the sense of they carry a message. So like John the Baptist in John chapter 1 is called an angelos of God. Now, does that mean that he has a halo and a wing? No, he's a human being, but he's carrying a message. And so I think the way that we should probably understand the seven stars is that they represent the messengers of the seven churches. And if that is the case, how would we say it? What, who are the messengers of the seven churches? Pastors, those that bring the word of God to the people of God. So in each of these seven letters, it's going to be addressed to a church, but specifically to the leadership of the church. All right. And if we had time to get into church to government, I would say that this is a great proof text for Presbyterianism. But we won't do that right now. But we could. But we won't. So, uh, anyways, we won't get into that. That was mainly a joke. But it's not funny to you, just to me. But it is funny to me. Which is why I said it. All right, we're wasting time. Um, So, the seven letters to the seven churches... um, you guys might remember that in the temple, there was this menorah, there was this lampstand that had different candles on it. And when was the light supposed to go off from that? Never. It was the priest's job to make it always keep burning. And here, Jesus is a priest for us. And it's his job to make sure that our light keeps burning. These churches are faced with persecution. They're, they're faced with uh, problems within and trials without. And, and, and these churches are in hard positions that are just going to get harder. But it's Jesus' job to care for the churches, to care for the light stands, and make sure that our lights keep shining before men, that they might see our good works and give glory to God who's in heaven. Um, huh? We're not going to, though. Um, so this is the position that we find Christ in. Um, in the seven letters... <coughs> Here's a, here's a fun thing, by the way. Uh, did you know that each of these seven letters is a summary of the book of Revelation? It is. Um, each of the letters, and you can, you can be looking at chapter 2 and chapter 3. We won't go through them uh, each individually just because of time. But each of the seven letters begins by referencing something about Jesus that John saw in his initial vision. So, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, to Ephesus. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
Do you hear how that's tied to the vision of Jesus in chapter 1? Verse 8, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. That's a quote from Jesus in the first vision that John just saw. Verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Verse 18, uh, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Every introduction of the seven letters references some part of that vision from chapter 1. So you get something from, from that. Then, as you get into the heart of the letter, kind of the meat of the letter, so, so each of them follows basically this, this pattern. Uh, intro. And then the, um, the body of the letter can have different parts. Um, the most full letters kind of have three things. They have what we would call a commendation, where Jesus says, hey, you're doing some stuff really great. Keep it up. And then they have something that we could call a rebuke. Uh, even though you're doing great stuff, there's this one thing that you need, to, you need to get going with. Then there's a call to repentance. Somewhere in this, there's also an acknowledgement of suffering. Either suffering that the church is already experiencing or will shortly experience. All right? And then at the end, um, there is a promise. And the promises at the end of the letter, um, in the introduction, the things about Jesus are all taken from chapter 1. The promises at the end are all taken from the very end of the book in chapter 21 and 22. All of the promises from the seven letters to the seven churches we will find again at the very end of the book in 21 and 22. So as we go through Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches kind of serve as a grid for understanding the rest of the book. Um, All of the letters begin the same way. All of the letters end the same way, right? As as the book of, as the whole does. And what are the seven letters to the seven churches about? Well, they're about Jesus speaking to the church and saying, I'm encouraging you to continue doing the things that you're doing. But there's some places where you're giving in to worldly pressure and you need to stop. You need to repent and you need to give me your wholehearted loyalty. But I know that it's hard. I see what you're suffering. And because of that, here's a promise that you need to strengthen you. As we go through Revelation, we're going to see that this is really what the entire book does. Good job being faithful. This part of your life right here, whether the life of your church or you individually, needs to change. So repent. But I know how hard it is. I know what you're going through. And so trust that my promise is true and let that strengthen you. This is what the entire book is going to do to us. Each of these letters follows the same pattern, and it's the pattern that we find in the book as a whole. Each of, you could say that each of these letters is revelation in summary form or a microcosm of it. Um, as you, uh, and, and not every one of these letters has all of these parts. Um, was there, was there any church that Jesus had nothing good to say to? Laodicea. Yeah. He doesn't have anything nice to say to Laodicea. He, he just rebukes them and then calls them to repent. What is the sin of Laodicea? 
Yeah, Laodicea is a very rich city. They have a lot of exports. And he says that really, though, you're... Um, and, and one of the exports is they have this salve that can help people who have trouble seeing. Like, it can help their eyes. And so he says, uh, you're actually blind, though. And even though you're kind of rich, you're, you're actually poor. And even though you think you're self-sufficient, you actually need me. Uh, he also says that they are neither hot nor cold, but that they are lukewarm. And what's he going to do? Spit them out if they don't repent. Um, so he doesn't have anything nice to say to Laodicea. Is there any church that he doesn't have anything to get on to them for? Yeah, Smyrna, he doesn't have any rebuke for them. Oh, to be a part of that church, right? And, and which other one? Philly? Yeah, nothing bad to say against Philly either. That's not Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. That's the real Philadelphia. You guys know that, though. So, the real Philadelphia. It's kind of like whenever I, I drive to Illinois to where my wife lives, we have to pass Mount Vernon, Illinois. And every time we pass it, I whisper, it's not the real one. And it gets on my wife's nerves a lot. Because um, the real one is, you know, where George Washington is from, right? So, uh, but it, it annoys her quite badly that I do that. But, I, like, I can't resist it. Every time that she even in conversation is like, hey, my mom went to Mount Vernon today, I'll go, it's not the real one. Just a reminder. So, um, Oh, George Washington ghost tour. Yeah. All right. Um, as you were reading through the seven letters to the seven churches, anything that struck you, stood out to you, you want to talk about real quick? What are some of the promises that he gives to the seven churches at the end of the... Uh, read some of them off. Yeah, what does the tree of life represent? Eternal life, right? In Revelation 21 and 22, we'll see that the new Jerusalem, the tree of life is growing there, and everyone is, who is there is able to eat of its fruit. So he's promising eternal life to the one who conquers. Um, it, the church at Ephesus mentions this group called the Nicolaitans. Um, you maybe can hear, uh, you guys, some of you are wearing Nike shoes. Nicolaitan Nike, um, it, it's the word for uh, victorious or conqueror. And the Nicolaitans were a group that said, um, we believe in Jesus, we believe that you can be forgiven of sin, but, but they also didn't have any place for like good works, holy living. And so they said, we kind of get the best of both worlds. We, we get to live it up here and then we get forgiven in eternal life and eternity. And so they, um, they persecuted people who really did follow God um, and um, Jesus is not a fan of the Nicolaitans, but he's saying, um, you who are faithful are the real Nicolaitans. You're the real conquerors because you overcome the world and you'll gain eternal life. What was another promise, Isaac? Uh, 26 through 28. Read it. <clears throat> and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him who I will give power over the nations. <clears throat> shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning song. 
Yeah, um, this is a fascinating passage because it, it keys us in on something that I think we would be scared to say if the Bible didn't say it for us, which is that um, when Christ returns, it's not just that Jesus rules over everything, but that we do too. We participate in his kingship. Uh, the one who conquers um, is given a rod of iron to rule the nations. Very, very interesting phrases there. It also says, I'll give him the morning star, which is something that Jesus calls himself in Revelation 22. Um, one of my favorite ones is um, in Revelation 2, 17. To the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You guys ever have like nicknames for your friends that like only you call them? And that's a sign of how close your personal relationship is with that person. And what we learn in Revelation 2.17 is that there's a new name that God has reserved for you that he's not going to let anyone else know you by. That's a name for him to call you and, and him alone to call you. And it's a sign of how deep and how personal that relationship with the Lord is and, and will be. So um, there's a lot. Of, I, I've preached through the seven letters to the seven churches before. Um, in years past, I've taken time to go through each of them, but we're losing some time here. Um, and so we need to move on to the next part of John's vision which is Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 4 and 5, um, someone read um, the first sentence of Revelation 4. Not the whole first verse, but just the first sentence. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open. Yeah, so what is, um, the first vision took place at Patmos. He turned around and sees Jesus and then starts writing everything. The next part of the vision has John where? Yeah. And John sees some stuff whenever he's in heaven. And the main thing that he's going to see is he's going to see a second vision of Jesus. But it's Jesus in the first vision um, looked terrifying. He had like a whole sword thing and like flaming eyes and all of that stuff, right? Um, the second vision of Jesus that he sees is going to really be different. But Jesus is going to start doing something in it that, that is a little bit frightening. Um, so let's start reading through four and five. Um, we want to get to the part where we can cover all of the seven seals tomorrow. So that's that's kind of the goal. And we're not thinking arc arc seals. We're we're talking like stamp seals. Um, I realized one time that I said the seven seals and was talking about this quite a lot in class. And like this person was very confused because it was talking about Jesus breaking the seven seals. And in this one student's mind, he was like ripping. But and and it was no 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 no. Jesus loves seals. Um, but these are not arc arc seals. These are stamp seals. So I also don't know another way of saying it than arc arc seal. Um, like I, I, three years now, and that is how I have referred to these creatures every time that we've gotten to this part of Revelation. So um, I even did that in a church one time, and this old lady just like looked at me really funny and then just started laughing hysterically. And I felt like I was about that big at that moment. Um, like everyone else is just like, oh, we know what you're talking about. We'll just kind of smile and acknowledge that that was kind of a joke. And this one lady looks at me and is like, I don't know. It was a, she was also Belgian, which didn't help. So I don't know why that didn't help, but it didn't. So um, 
I don't know. She was a really sassy European lady. Um, so, um, Miss Miss uh, Miss Bella, will you read chapter four, verses one through six? That sea of glass is going to come back in and play prominently in not too long. There's a lot of Old Testament texts that are being combined here to talk about the appearance of God. We are not going to get into. Um, What we do want to mention really quickly is those 24 elder guys, um, I think are probably symbolic for the 12 patriarchs of Israel and the 12 apostles. So uh, Israel and the church, basically. Old Testament people of God, New Testament people of God, all gathered around the throne of God. Um, Let's do the next paragraph, which um, is the last part of verse 6. And let's read through verse... Let's read through the end of the chapter, verse 11. Um, Sophia, will you do that? And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature, like with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they Someone impressed me. Those four living creatures, what are they called? Cherubim. Cherubim. All right. So they're the cherubim, um, which are freaky little dudes. Um, They're all around the throne, and they're worshiping, saying, holy, holy, holy. Reference back to Isaiah, where the seraphim did that. And whenever they cry out to God, um, all of the elders will fall down, and they'll throw their thrones before the, the, the... the, uh, throw their crowns before the throne of God. They've been given authority. They've been given power, but his kingship so far exceeds their own that they take the crown off of their head as if they're saying, only you are worthy of any sort of authority. Only you deserve that. The vision continues into chapter five. I really don't like that chapter break because sometimes we can kind of feel like it's two different scenes, but this flows really naturally into the next chapter. So, uh, Jackson, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and this is where stuff starts picking up.
I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll of Loose its seals or break its seals. Yeah. And no one in heaven or on earth or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the, and read the scroll or to, or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, so God is sitting on the throne and he has this scroll in his head or in his hand, sorry. And how how many how many non-arc arc seals are on it? Seven. Seven. And and um one of the angels, a very strong angel, it tells us, so apparently. Some angels are stronger than others or mightier than others. One of the really mighty ones says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth can do it. And what is John's reaction to that? He starts weeping because whatever this scroll is, is super, super important. Whatever this scroll is, it needs to be opened for the sake of, of, of John and, and for the sake of the people of God. And one of the elders looks at him and tells him, stop crying for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered and he can open the scroll and the seven seals. Who is that? By the way, who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Jesus. Jesus. Um, now what's very interesting is that what happens next is, is, if you, if you stop right here and you think about what is John about to see next, what would you expect him to see next? Jesus. You'd expect him to see Jesus, and he's already seen Jesus in chapter 1. How would you expect Jesus to look now? Big and scary. Big and scary, maybe kind of like chapter 1. He's just been called a lion. This is what we read. Verse 6 now. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he, meaning the lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God for ev- from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The idea that's being presented here is that Jesus came and, and, and he became a man that was descended of David. And David was supposed to have a son who, who would be king on the throne. And Jesus was fully obedient to God as a humble servant. And now he's been exalted as a worthy king, as Lord of, of Lord of all. And because of that, he's able to take whatever this scroll is and he's able to begin breaking the seals and he's able to begin to open the scroll. But what does he look like in this text? Yeah, not just a lamb, but one that looked like it had been killed. Did you hear that? And so what we see is not this lamb that looks mighty. It's not even like the vision of Jesus a minute ago with the sword and everything. It looks like a lamb that's been murdered. And this lamb walks up to the one that's on the throne. He takes the scroll and all of heaven starts celebrating this lamb. It starts worshiping this lamb, telling him that he's worthy, telling him that he's worthy of all praise and honor and glory and might and all else because of what he's done through his death and resurrection. And the next scene that we're going to get, it's going to continue the same vision into chapter six, but what the lamb is going to do is he's going to start breaking these seals. And whenever he starts breaking these seals, all heck is going to break loose. The breaking of the seals means judgment for the land. And basically the big picture of what we're going to look at the in the next lesson is that as the seals are broken, the lamb who was slain is visiting those that slew him in judgment. And so we're going to look at what happens um, around this time with the Jewish Roman war tomorrow. And then we're going to look at the seven seals and what we're going to see is that they match up very, very well. Right? So um, the seals are, um, as they're broken, um, judgment breaks forth from whatever the scroll thing is. I don't know. It's a vision, right? So, yeah. is this like is this like a anthropomorphic <laughs> lamb? Like, is it like using its teeth? I don't know. No clue. No clue. I've, I've thought about that a lot more than I would like to admit. Like, what does it look like for the lamb to take the scroll and start breaking it? Was it like, I, and I don't know, like visions are weird. You, you've probably had dreams before where you wake up the next morning and you realize like in the dream, I was talking to this person, but like halfway through the dream, all of a sudden they were a different person. And like in my dream, there was like a lack of continuity, right? Is that what John's vision is doing? Where like I see him as a lamb and then it like kind of grows into a person, Jesus? Or I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know from this text is that the Christ that is presented in heaven here looks like he's been what? Murdered. It looks like he's been slain. And what that reminds us is that whenever Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't cease to be human. At the incarnation, something irreversible happened. Jesus took to himself a human nature. And for all eternity, he's going to keep that. 
He's never going to stop being the God-man because what you need to save you is a God-man. And so even in heaven, Jesus has that human nature. He has that body that was crucified and resurrected, and the wounds of the cross are still on it. Now, in Jesus's power, could he have resurrected his body and totally healed those wounds? He could have. But he appears to his disciples, and he uses that as a way of showing them, I really am the Jesus that walked with you, and I really have been raised from the dead. And one of the things that I think we're supposed to get from this text as well is, um, here's a question, does God the Father forget anything? No. So we have that confidence. But we have even more than that confidence, because seated, seated at his right hand is the lamb who has been slain, and he has the wounds of the crucifixion still, and it's a memorial to what he's done for his people. God wouldn't have forgotten anyways, but how can he ever forget whenever Jesus' body still carries those wounds? And one day, whenever we get to glory, we're going to see those wounds. Um, the scars of, of Calvary are a good, are, they're good news scars. They weren't fun to get, but they're a way that we see redemption at work. And I think that that's a, a word to us as well. Uh, any of you guys have scars? Maybe they're bodily, maybe they're more emotional uh, or something like that. Um, you know, I think, I think sometimes about this story in Mark 5 where there was this demoniac, a guy that was demon-possessed, and it says that he lived among the tombs and he used to take sharp rocks and cut himself. The demon made him engage in self-harm. And whenever Jesus heals this guy, he, he releases the demon from him. Uh, the guy sits there in his right mind, and the text never says Jesus touched his body and made all of the flesh grow back. That guy walked away from there looking like he had been demon-possessed. He walks away from there probably with some very noticeable gashes and scars. But what Jesus tells him is he says, you're not allowed to become one of my disciples because I have something else in store for you. Go back to your hometown and tell them what I've done for you. And so as that guy goes back to his hometown, those those scars all of a sudden have a redemptive function. He can look at these people and say, I was dead in my trespasses and sins to the point that I I invited a demon in. And you can see the evidence of this. Look what I used to do to myself. Look what that thing used to make me do to myself. But there's this guy, there's this powerful prophet, there's this God-man Jesus that's released me from that and he has power to save to the uttermost those who believe. And so with, with us those same things can be true. We have scars, and and sometimes they're physical, sometimes they're non-physical, but we have these things in our life, and and sometimes they can take on this redemptive function, just like Jesus' wounds did, just like the garrison demoniac's wounds did. God can take those things, and he can use them for something that's very beautiful down the road. And um, I, I think it's important to recognize, too, that heaven doesn't always take away all of the scars. It takes away the pain. There is healing there. But sometimes, at least in Jesus' case, those wounds remain because they become a joyful testimony of what the work of God was. And and they're reminders of that. Um, You guys remember Samuel, after a battle, built a stone structure called an Ebenezer, a reminder that God was our help. They can become Ebenezers for us. So um, I need you guys to read tomorrow, uh, for tomorrow. I want you to read Revelation 6 through do six through seven just two chapters do six through seven and that'll be enough and we'll talk about it tomorrow